0: Section 2 of The Lane That Had No Turning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Fallis. The Lane That Had No Turning and Other Tales Concerning the People of Pontiac by Gilbert Parker. THE LANE THAT HAD NO TURNING, PART 2 CHAPTER THREE MAN TO MAN AND STEEL TO STEEL One evening, a fortnight later, Louis Racine and George Fornell, the Englishman, stood face to face in the library of the manor-house. There was antagonism and animosity in the attitude of both apart from the fact that louis had succeeded to the seigneury promised to fournel and sealed to him by a reputed will which had never been found there was cause for hatred on the englishman's part Fornell had been an incredibly successful man. Things had come his way, wealth, and the power that wealth brings. He had but two setbacks, and the man before him in the manor-house of Pontiac was the cause of both. The last rebuff had been the succession to the seigneury, which, curious as it might seem, had been the cherished dream of the rich man's retirement it had been his fancy to play the seigneur the lord magnificent and bountiful and he had determined to use wealth and all manner of influence to have the title of baron pontiac revived it had been obsolete for a hundred years he leaned towards the grace of a hereditary dignity as other retired millionaires cultivate art and letters vainly imagining that they can wheedle civilization and the humanities into giving them what they do not possess by nature and fool the world at the same time the loss of the seigneury had therefore cut deep but there had been a more hateful affront still Four years before, Louis Racine, once spasmodically practising law in Quebec, had been approached by two poor Frenchmen, who laid claim to thousands of acres of land which a land company, whereof George Fournel was president, was publicly exploiting for the woods and valuable minerals discovered on it. The land company had been composed of Englishmen only. Louis Racine, reactionary and imaginative, brilliant and free from sordidness, and openly hating the English, had taken up the case, and for two years fought at tooth and nail without pay or reward. The matter had become a cause célèbre, the land company engaging the greatest lawyers in both the English and French provinces." In the Supreme Court, the case was lost to Louis's clients. He took it over to the Privy Council in London, and carried it through triumphantly and alone, proving his client's title. His two poor Frenchmen regained their land. In payment, he would accept nothing save the ordinary fees, as though it were some petty case in a county court.' He had, however, made a reputation which he had seemed not to value, save as a means of showing hostility to the governing race, and the seigneury of Pontiac, when it fell to him, had more charms for him than any celebrity to be won at the bar. His love of the history of his country was a mania with him, and he looked forward, on arriving at Pontiac, to being the apostle of French independence on the continent. Madelinette had crossed his path in his most enthusiastic moment, when his brilliant tongue and great dreams surrounded him with a kind of glamour. He had caught her to himself out of the girl's first triumph, when her nature, tried by the strain of her first challenge to the judgment of the world, cried out for rest, for Pontiac and home, and all that was of the old life among her people. Fournel's antipathy had only been increased by the fact that Louis Racine had married the now famous Madelinette, and his animosity extended to her. It was not in him to understand the nature of the Frenchman—volatile, moody, chivalrous, unreasonable, the slave of ideas, the victim of sentiment— Not understanding, when he began to see that he could not attain the object of his visit, which was to secure some relics of the late seigneur's household, he chose to be disdainful. "'You are bound to give me these things I ask for as a matter of justice, if you know what justice means,' he said at last. "'You should be aware of that,' answered the seigneur with a kindling look. He felt every glance of Fornell's eye, a contemptuous comment upon his deformity, now so egregious and humiliating. I taught you justice once. Fornell was not to be moved from his phlegm. He knew he could torture the man before him, and he was determined to do so, if he did not get his way upon the matter of his visit. "'You can teach me justice twice and be thanked once,' he answered. "'These things I ask for were much prized by my friend, the late seigneur. "'I was led to expect that this seigneury, and all in it, and on it, should be mine. "'I know it was intended so. "'The law gives it to you instead. "'Your technical claim has overridden my rights. "'You have a gift for making successful technical claims.' But these old personal relics, of no monetary value, you can waive your avaricious and indelicate claim to them. He added the last words with a malicious smile, for the hardening look in Racine's face told him his request was hopeless, and he could not resist the temptation to put the matter with cutting force. Racine rose to the bait with a jump, "'Not one single thing, not one single solitary thing!' "'The sentiment is strong, if the grammar is bad,' interrupted Fornell, meaning to wound wherever he found an opportunity, for the seigneur's deformity excited in him no pity. It rather incensed him against the man, as an affront to decency and to his own just claims to the honours the Frenchman enjoyed.' It was a petty resentment, but George Fornell had set his heart upon playing the Grand Seigneur over the Frenchman of Pontiac, and of ultimately leaving his fortune to the parish, if they all fell down and worshipped him and his golden calf. "'The grammar is suitable to the case,' retorted the Seigneur, his voice rising. "'Everything is mine by law, and everything I will keep. If you think different, produce a will. Produce a will!' Truth was, Louis Racine would rather have parted with the seigneury itself than with these relics asked for. They were reminiscent of the time when France and her golden lilies brooded over his land, of the days when Louis XIV was king. He cherished everything that had association with the days of the old regime, as a miser hugs his gold or a woman her jewels. The request to give them up to this unsympathetic Englishman, who valued them because they had belonged to his friend, the late Seigneur, only exasperated him. "'I am ready to pay the highest possible price for them, as I have said,' urged the Englishman, realizing, as he spoke, that it was futile to urge the sale upon that basis. "'Money cannot buy the things that Frenchmen love. We are not a race of hucksters.' "'retorted the seigneur. "'That accounts for your envious dispositions, then. "'You can't buy what you want. "'You love such curious things, I assume. "'So you play the dog in the manger "'and won't let other decent folk buy what they want.' "'He wilfully distorted the other's meaning "'and was delighted to see the seigneur's fingers twitch with fury.' But since you can't buy the things you love, and you seem to think you should, how do you get them? Do you come by them honestly, or do you work miracles? When a spider makes love to his lady, he dances before her to infatuate her, and then in a moment of her delighted aberration snatches at her affections. It is the way of the spider, then.' With a snarl as of a wild beast, Louis Racine sprang forward and struck Fornell in the face with his clenched fist. Then, as Fornell, blinded, staggered back upon the bookshelves, he snatched two antique swords from the wall. Throwing one on the floor in front of the Englishman, he ran to the door and locked it, and turned round. The sword grasped firmly in his hand, and white with rage. "'Spider! Spider! By heaven, you shall have the spider dance before you!' he said hoarsely. He had mistaken Fornell's meaning. He had put the most horrible construction upon it. He thought that Fornell referred to his deformity, and had ruthlessly dragged in Madelinette as well. He was like a being distraught.' his long brown hair was tossed over his blanched forehead and piercing black eyes his head was thrown forward even more than his deformity compelled his white teeth showed in a grimace of hatred he was half crouched like an animal ready to spring take up the sword or i'll run you through the heart where you stand he continued in a hoarse whisper i will give you till i can count three then by god in heaven Fornell felt that he had to deal with a man demented. The blow he had received had laid open the flesh on his cheekbone, and blood was flowing from the wound. Never in his life before had he been so humiliated, and by a Frenchman it roused every instinct of race hatred in him. Yet he wanted not to go at him with a sword, but with his two honest hands, and beat him into a whining submission." but the man was deformed. He had none of his own robust strength. He was not to be struck, but to be tossed out of the way like an offending child. He staunched the blood from his face and made a step forward without a word, determined not to fight, but to take the weapon from the other's hands. Coward, said the seigneur, you dare not fight with the sword. With the sword we are even. I am as strong as you there. Stronger, and I will have your blood. Coward, 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 I will give you till I count three. One, two—' Fornell did not stir. He could not make up his mind what to do. Cry out. No one could come in time to prevent the onslaught, and onslaught there would be, he knew—' there was a merciless hatred in the seigneur's face a deadly purpose in his eyes the wild determination of a man who did not care whether he lived or died ready to throw himself upon a hundred in his hungry rage It seemed so wild, so monstrous, that the beautiful summer day, through which came the sharp wetting of the scythe, the song of the birds, and the smell of ripening fruit and grain, should be invaded by this tragic absurdity, this human fury, which must spend itself in blood. Fornell's mind was conscious of this feeling, this sense of futile foolish waste and disfigurement, even as the seigneur said— three, and rushing forward, thrust. As Four now saw the blade spring at him, he dropped on one knee, caught it with his left hand as it came, and wrenched it aside. The blade lacerated his fingers and his palm, but he did not let go till he had seized the sword at his feet with his right hand. Then, springing up with it, he stepped back quickly and grasped his weapon fiercely enough now. Yet, enraged as he was, he had no wish to fight, to involve himself in a fracas which might end in tragedy and the courts of the land. It was a high price to pay for any satisfaction he might have in this affair. If the seigneur were killed in the encounter, he must defend himself now. What a miserable notoriety and possible legal penalty and public punishment! For who could vouch for the truth of his story?' even if he wounded racine only what a wretched story to go abroad that he had fought with a hunchback a hunchback who knew the use of the sword which he did not but still a hunchback stop this nonsense he said as louis racine prepared to attack again don't be a fool the game isn't worth the candle one of us does not leave this room alive said the seigneur. You care for life, you love it, and you can't buy what you love from me. I don't care for life, and I would gladly die to see your blood flow. Look, it's flowing down your face, it's dripping from your hand, and there shall be more dripping soon. En garde! he suddenly attacked with fierce energy, forcing Fornell back upon the wall. He was not a first-class swordsman, but he had far more knowledge of the weapon than his opponent, and he had no scruple about using his knowledge. Fornell fought with desperate alertness, yet awkwardly, and he could not attack. It was all that he could do, all that he knew how to do, to defend himself." Twice again did the seigneur's weapon draw blood, once from the shoulder and once from the leg of his opponent, and the blood was flowing from each wound. After the second injury, they stood panting for a moment. Now the outside world was shut out from Fournel's senses, as it was from Louis Racine's. The only world they knew was this cool room whose oak floors were browned by the slow searching stains of time and darkened by the footsteps of six generations that had come and gone through the old house. The books along the walls seemed to cry out against the unseemly and unholy strife. But now both men were in that atmosphere of supreme egoism, where only their two selves moved, and where the only thing that mattered on earth was the issue of this strife. Fournel could only think of how to save his life, and to do that he must become the aggressor, for his wounds were bleeding hard, and he must have more wounds, if the fight went on without harm to the seigneur. "'You know now what it is to insult a Frenchman. On guard. Again cried the seigneur in a shriller voice, for everything in him was pitched to the highest note. He again attacked, and the sound of the large swords meeting clashed on the soft air. As they struggled, a voice came ringing through the passages, singing a bar from an opera. O eager golden day, O happy evening hour, Behold, my lover cometh from fields of wrath and hate, Sheathed as a sword, he cometh to my bower, In war he findeth honour and love within the gate. The voice came nearer and nearer, It pierced the tragic separateness of the scene of blood, It reached the ears of the seigneur, And a look of pain shot across his face. Fournel was only dimly aware of the voice, for he was hard-pressed, and it seemed to come from infinite distances. Presently the voice stopped, and someone tried the door of the room. It was Madelinette. Astonished at finding it locked, she stood still a moment, uncertain what to do. Then the sounds of the struggle within came to her ears. She shook the door leaned her shoulders against it, and called, Louis! Louis! Suddenly she darted away, found Havel, the faithful servant in the passage, and brought him swiftly to the door. The man sprang upon it, striking with his shoulder. The lock gave, the door flew open, and Madelinette stepped swiftly into the room in time to see George Fornell sway and fall. "'his sword rattling on the hard oak floor. "'Oh, what have you done, Louis?' she cried, "'then added hurriedly to Havel. "'Draw the blind there, shut the door, "'and tell Madame Marie to bring some water, quickly.' "'The silent servant vanished, "'and she dropped on her knees beside the bleeding and insensible man "'and lifted his head. "'He insulted you and me, and I've killed him, Madelinette," "'said Louis hoarsely. A horrified look came to her face, and she hurriedly and tremblingly opened Fournel's waistcoat and shirt and felt his heart. She was freshly startled by a struggle behind her, and turning quickly, she saw Madame Marie holding the seigneur's arm to prevent him from ending his own life. She sprang up and laid her hand upon her husband's arm. "'He is not dead. You need not do it, Louis,' she said quietly." There was no alarm, no undue excitement in her face now. She was acting with good presence of mind. A new sense was working in her. Something had gone from her suddenly, where her husband was concerned, and something else had taken its place. An infinite pity, a bitter sorrow, and a gentle command were in her eyes all at once, new vistas of life opened before her all in an instant. ''He is not dead, and there is no need to kill yourself, Louis,'' she repeated, and her voice had a command in it that was not to be gainsaid. ''Since you have vindicated your honour, you will now help me to set this business right.'' Madame Marie was on her knees beside the insensible man. ''No, he is not dead, thank God,'' she murmured, and while Havel stripped the arm and leg, she poured some water between Fournel's lips. Her long experience as the little chemist's wife served her well now. Now that the excitement was over, Louis collapsed. He swayed and would have fallen, but Madelinette caught him, helped him to the sofa, and forcing him gently down on his side, adjusted a pillow for him, and turned to the wounded man again. An hour went busily by in the closely curtained room, and at last, George Fornell, Conscious and with wounds well bandaged, sat in a big armchair glowering round him. At his first coming to, Louis Racine, at his wife's insistence, had come and offered his hand and made apology for assaulting him in his own house. Fornell's reply had been that he wanted to hear no more fool's talk, and to have no more fool's doings, and that one day he hoped to take his pay for the day's business in a satisfactory way. Madelinette made no apology, said nothing, save that she hoped he would remain for a few days, till he was recovered enough to be moved. He replied that he would leave as soon as his horses were ready, and refused to take food, or drink from their hands. His servant was brought from the Louis Quince Hotel, and through him he got what was needed for refreshment, and requested that no one of the household should come near him. At night, in the darkness, he took his departure, no servant of the household in attendance. But as he got into the carriage, Madelinette came quickly to him and said, i would give ten years of my life to undo today's work i have no quarrel with you madam he said gloomily raised his hat and was driven away chapter four madelinette makes a discovery the national fate of the summer was over the day had been successful More successful, indeed, than any within the memory of the inhabitants, for the English and French soldiers joined in the festivities without any intrusion of racial spirit, but in the very essence and soul of good fellowship. The general had called at the manor, had paid his respects to the seigneur, who received him abstractedly, if not coolly, but Madelinette had captured his imagination and his sympathies. He was fond of music for an Englishman, and with a ravishing charm she sang for him a bergerette of the eighteenth century, and then a ballad of Shakespeare's set to her own music. She was so anxious that the great holiday should pass off without one untoward incident that she would have resorted to any fair device to attain the desired end. The general could help her by his influence and instructions, and if the soldiers, regulars, and militia, joined in the celebrations harmoniously and with good will, a long step would be made towards undoing the harm that Louis had done, and maybe influencing him towards a saner, wiser view of things. He had changed much since the fateful day when he had forced George Fornell to fight him had grown more silent, and had turned grey. His eyes had become by turns watchful and suspicious, gloomy and abstracted, and his speech knew the same variations, now bitter and cynical, now sad and distant, and all the time his eyes seemed to grow darker, and his face paler. But however moody and variable and irascible he might be with others, however unappeasable, With Madelinette, he struggled to be gentle, and his petulance gave way under the intangible persuasiveness of her words and will, which had the effect of command. Under this influence, he had prepared the words which he was to deliver at the fete. They were full of veneration for past traditions, but were not at variance with the proper loyalty to the flag under which they lived and If the English soldiery met the speech with genial appreciation, the day might end in a blessing, and surely blessings were overdue in Madelinette's life in Pontiac. It had been as she worked for and desired, thanks to herself and the English general's sympathetic help. Perhaps his love of music made him better understand what she wanted, made him even forgiving of the seigneur's strained manner. But certain it is that the day, begun with uneasiness on the part of the people of Pontiac, who felt themselves under surveillance, ended in great good feeling and harmless revelry, and it was also certain that the seigneur's speech gained him an applause that surprised him and momentarily appeased his vanity." The general gave him a guard of honour of the French militia in keeping with his position as seigneur, and this, with Madelinette's presence at his elbow, restrained him in his speech when he would have broken from the limits of propriety in the intoxication of his eager eloquence. But he spoke with moderation, standing under the British flag on the platform, and at the last he said, "'A flag not our own floats over us now.' guarantees us against the malice of the world, and assures us in our laws and religion. But there is another flag, which in our tearful memories is as dear to us now as it was at Carillon and Levis. It is the flag of memory, of language, and of race, the emblem of our past upon our hearthstones, and the great country that rules us does not deny us reverence to it. Seeing it, we see the history of our race from Charlemagne to this day, and we have a pride in that history which England does not rebuke, a pride which is just and right. It is fitting that we should have a day of commemoration. Far off in France burns the light our fathers saw and were glad of and we in Pontiac have a link that binds us to the old home. We have ever given her proud remembrance. We now give her art and song. With these words, and turning to his wife, he ended, and cries of... Madame Madelinette, Madame Madelinette, were heard everywhere. Even the English soldiers cheered, and Madelinette sang "A la Claire Fontaine," three verses in French and one in English, and the whole valley rang with the refrain sung at the topmost pitch by five thousand voices. Il y a longtemps que je t'aime, Jamais, je n'ai, tout pleure. The day of pleasure done, and dusk settled on Pontiac, and on the encampment of soldiers in the valley, a light still burned in the library at the manor house, long after midnight. Madelinette had gone to bed, but excited by the events of the day, she could not sleep, and she went down to the library to read. But her mind wandered still and she sat, mechanically looking before her, at a picture of the father of the late seigneur, which was let into the moulding of the oak wall. As she looked abstractedly, and yet with the intensity of the preoccupied mind, her eye became aware of a little piece of wood let into the moulding of the frame. The light of the hanging lamp was full on it. This irregularity began to perplex her eye, Presently, it intruded on her reverie. Still busy with her thoughts, she knelt upon the table beneath the picture and pressed the irregular piece of wood. A spring gave. The picture came slowly away from the frame and disclosed a small cupboard behind. In this cupboard were a few books, an old silver-handed pistol, and a packet Madelinette's reverie was broken now. She was face to face with discovery and mystery. Her heart stood still with fear. After an instant of suspense, she took out the packet and held it to the light. She gave a smothered cry. It was the will of the late seigneur. Chapter 5 What Will She Do With It? George Fournel was the heir to the Seigneury of Pontiac, not Louis Racine. There it was, in the will of Monsieur de la Riviere, duly signed and attested. Madeline's heart stood still. Louis was no longer, indeed never had been, Seigneur of Pontiac, and they had no right there, had never had any right there. They must leave this place, which was to Louis the fetish of his soul, the small compensation fate had made him, for the trouble nature had cynically laid upon him. He had clung to it as a drowning man clings to a spar. To him it was the charter from which he could appeal to the world as the husband of Madelinette Lajunas. To him it was the name, the dignity, and the fortune he brought her. It was the one thing that saved him from a dire humiliation. It was the vantage ground from which he appealed to her respect, the flaming testimony of his own self-esteem. Every hour since his trouble had come upon him, since Madeleine's great fame had come to her, he had protested to himself that it was honor for honor, and every day he had labored, sometimes how fantastically, how futilely, to dignify his position, to enhance his importance in her eyes. She had understood it all, had read him to the last letter in the alphabet of his mind and heart. She had realized the consternation of the people, and she knew that for her sake, and because the curé had commanded, all the obsolete claims he had made were responded to by the people. Certainly he had affected them by his eloquence and his fiery kindness, but at the same time they had shrewdly smelt the trees and underneath his ardor. There was a definite limit to their loyalty to him, and... Deprived of the seigneury, he would count for nothing. A hundred thoughts like these went through her mind as she stood by the table, under the hanging lamp, her face white as the loose robe she wore, her eyes hot and staring, her figure rigid as stone. Tomorrow? How could she face tomorrow? And Louis? How could she tell him this? How could she say to him, Louis? You are no longer senor. The man you hate, he who is your inveterate enemy, who has every reason to exact from you the last tribute of humiliation, is senor here. How could she face the despair of the man whose life was one inward fever, one long illusion, which was yet only half an illusion, since he was forever tortured by suspicion, whose body was wearing itself out, and whose spirit was destroying itself in the struggle of a vexed imagination? She knew that Louis' years were numbered. She knew that this blow would break him, body and soul. He could never survive the humiliation. "'His sensitiveness was a disease. "'His pride was the only thing that kept him going. "'His love of her, strong as it was, "'would be drowned in an imagined shame. "'It was midnight. "'She was alone with this secret. "'She held the paper in her hand, "'which was at once Louis's sentence "'or his charter of liberty. "'A candle was at her hand. "'The doors were shut, the blinds drawn.' the house a frozen silence. How cold she was, though it was the deep of summer. She shivered from head to foot, and yet all day the harvest sun had drenched the room in its heat. Yet her blood might run warm again, her cold cheeks might regain their color, her heart beat quietly, if this paper were no more. The thought made her shrink away from herself, as it were, yet she caught up the candle and lighted it. For Louis, for Louis, though she would rather have died than do it for herself. To save to Louis what was, to his imagination, the one claim he had upon her respect and the world's. After all, how little was it in value or in dignity, how little she cared for it. One year of her voice could earn two such seigneuries as this and the honour, save that it was Pontiac, it was not to her. In all her life she had never done or said a dishonourable thing. She had never lied, she had never deceived, she had never done aught that might not have been written down and published to all the world. Yet here, all at once, she was faced with a vast temptation to do a deed, the penalty of which was an indelible shame. What injury would it do to George Fornell? He was used now to his disappointment. He was rich. He had no claims upon Pontiac. There was no one but himself to whom it mattered, this little seigneury. What he did not know did not exist, so far as himself was concerned. How easily could it all be made right some day? She felt as though she were suffocating, and she opened the window a little very softly, then she lit the candle tremblingly, watched the flame gather strength, and opened out the will. As she did so, however, the smell of a buckwheat field, which is as honey, came stealing through the room, and all at once a strange association of ideas flashed into her brain. She recalled one summer day, long ago, when in the church of St. Saviour's, the smell of the buckwheat-fields came through the open door and windows, and her mind had kept repeating, mechanically, till she fell asleep, the text of the curé's sermon, As ye sow, so also shall ye reap. That placid hour which had no problems, no cares, no fears, No penalties in view, which was filled with the richness of a blessed harvest and the plentitude of innocent youth, came back on her now in the moment of her fierce temptation. She folded up the paper slowly. A sob came in her throat. She blew out the candle and put the will back in the cupboard. The faint click of the spring as she closed the panel seemed terribly loud to her. She started. "'and looked timorously round. "'The blood came back to her face. "'She flushed crimson with guilt. "'Then she turned out the lighted lamp "'and crept away up the stairs to her room. "'She paused beside Louis's bed. "'He was moving restlessly in his sleep. "'He was murmuring her name. "'With a breaking sigh, she crept into bed slowly "'and lay like one who had been beaten, "'bruised, and shamed.' At last, before the dawn, she fell asleep. She dreamed that she was in prison and that George Fornell was her jailer. She waked to find Louis at her bedside. I am holding my seigneurial court today, he said. End of Section 2